0: Beneath the gray skies, north of London, there was a small group of mourners who gathered around an open grave, and it was Saturday, March 17th, the year was 1883. And uh, those that were there that day had come for the burial service of a man whom some would eventually call the greatest thinker. history, at least recent modern history. And the body in the casket was that of a man by the name of Karl Marx. Dave Brees wrote a book um, called Seven Men Who Ruled the World. But he said of Marx, he said that the accolades concerning his life and thought border on idolatry. And the promises believed so many As far as the future was concerned, you know, that that Marx ultimately pointed to, uh, really, he claimed to be able to create a little bit of heaven on earth. And that's what Marx was wanting to aim for. Well, his friend, uh, Friedrich Engels, made some remarks that day at that funeral service in which here's what he said of Karl Marx. Just as Darwin discovered the law of evolution in organic nature... So Marx discovered the law of evolution in human history. He discovered the simple fact that mankind must first of all eat and drink, have shelter and clothing before it can pursue politics, science, and religion. In other words, the material, that's what really matters. You know, uh, not the immaterial, it's the material. Now I say that, to just simply say, maybe you're familiar with a statement that was made popular by Karl Marx, who said something along these lines, that religion is the opium of the people, or the opiate of the people. The full quote there, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, the soul of the soulless conditions. Religion is the opium of of the people. Now Karl Marx was an atheist, But he realized the fact that man is always driven to worship something. And Marx viewed all religion really as man-made superstition. uh, Nothing more than a crutch to help people cope with the harsh realities of life in a world that is riddled with problems. And so according to Marx, religion was really a drug that gave man a sense of hope or a sense of rest Uh, that he could pin his hopes upon, his comforts upon, something other than the cruel world around man. Okay, so the cure for humanity's need for religion, according to Marx, was to simply overcome the conditions of oppression in society and inequality in society, all of which forced people to seek answers for life somewhere outside of themselves. And that kind of explains Marxism in a nutshell. And the solution that Marx came up with was an ideology known as communism, which was a system, really an atheistic system, that supposedly made everyone in society equal by spreading society's wealth and really provided an incentive to shake off the medieval restraints of religion. Now, ironically, his system has invoked as much religious zeal in the last 100-plus years as any of what he called the man-made religious systems, those that he criticized, like Christianity. And so communism, ultimately, it resulted in nothing more than an exchange of one religion for a secular religion, the rejection of a spiritual religion really for a purely secular religion. Now, I don't have this on the screen, but if you were to look up the definition for the word religion, which it's kind of become a nasty word in the mouths of a lot of people. You know, even within the church, we want to tell people, we're not religious now, but we have a relationship because we understand the fact that religion is something that is really frowned upon, especially in a secular age such as ours. But Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines religion in three ways. The first... Religion is a personal set or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. The second way that it defines it, uh, it's the service and worship of God or the supernatural. By that definition, let me ask you a question. Are you a religious person? (laughs) Nobody wants to answer it (laughs) because I am a religious person. And I don't mind being known as such. But listen to this, the third way that this is defined, listen to this, it's a cause, principle, or system of beliefs held to with ardor and faith, with enthusiasm, zeal, and faith. (laughs) So you know what that tells me? That definition tells me that every single person is religious whether they claim it or not. Because every single person pins their hopes upon something or someone. Every single person has some type of ideology with which they view life and their life in the world. Even someone who was anti-religious and atheistic like Karl Marx, he was highly religious, but he enshrined himself in his own ideals. And communism and socialism is really nothing more than the religion of Marx that divvied up society and pitted social classes against each other, all in the name of inequality and, and that kind of thing. But here's what happens. It only divides a society. And it revol- results in just perpetual division in that society. And that's, that's something the 20th century has proven. And it ought to be amazing to us that, you know, there seems to be a generation in Western civilization that's still enamored with all things socialist and Marxist And sometimes the the, the language changes, you know, the, the, the players change, but the game remains the same. And that's what we see happening in our culture today. All right, so here's the question then that I want to pose. What role will religion ultimately play in the last days? This is something that we've really not talked about in our study of Revelation. But the book of Revelation shows that religion will play a crucial role in the last days. Because false religion will come to a boiling point where eventually it will be judged and shown to be the counterfeit that it truly is. Okay, so with all of that in mind, I want us to go to Revelation chapter 17 tonight. Revelation chapter 17, when we pick right back up in our study... And just to put this in context, you remember that in chapters 15 and 16, we were given a description of the final plagues that will be poured out on the world in the last days of the tribulation period, the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And so those seven bold judgments that were mentioned there in uh, uh, chapter 15 and then actually experienced, described in chapter 16, These represent seven final plagues which will consummate the wrath of God before ushering in the return of Jesus and the ushering in of the kingdom of Jesus. And so just like we've seen in earlier passages, what happens in chapters 17 and 18, well, once again, there's a break in the chronological action which will resume once more when we get to chapter 19, which describes the battle of Armageddon and the return of Jesus. And you'll notice that that's sort of how uh, chapter 16 ends, with just this, this final plague being poured out. And so we talked a little bit about Armageddon, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, as it was mentioned there, um, the one and only time uh, in the reference uh, here in Revelation. Okay, so um, the seventh bold judgment described at the end of chapter 16, uh, it's God's wrath that's poured out. You'll notice that it says upon Babylon the Great, verse 19 of the 16th chapter. All right, Babylon the Great is made to drink the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. What is that? What is Babylon the Great? Well, chapters 17 and 18 explain really what Babylon the Great is and why it is under judgment and how this judgment will indeed come to pass. So the digression then that we see in chapter 17, it's not so much concerned with specific judgments like we see in chapter 16, but it's describing what is being judged and why it's being judged. So here once more, John is giving us some information where he's going back and he's, he's filling in some details. We saw this in chapter 12 with, you know, the, you know the, 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 the red dragon, the woman, and we said it was a symbolic of Israel, the serpent being symbolic of Satan himself. Well, the same thing's happening here in this 17th chapter. Okay, so Babylon, what is Babylon? Well, where you find this in the book of Revelation It is the world system, the world system as it is under the influence of Satan, the Antichrist, his false prophet, and how that world system is going to come to future destruction. Okay, so Babylon is an appropriate description for the political, religious, economic system of rebellious humanity that has persecuted the people of God down through the ages and one day is going to be met with certain judgment. So so think of this Babylon as being the world united in its rebellion against its creator. Which, by the way, we see this spirit at work in the world. It's, It's the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, but there's this this cultural mentality where there's been this wedding together of religious ideas and political ideas and economic ideas. And so all of that's moving towards some type of a system, a global one-world system that's going to come under judgment in the last days. All right? So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Now, I've got three points from this passage. And I'm already going to tell you, I'm not going to deal with the whole chapter tonight because I really can't get past just this first point. All right, so let's read. Let's just read the text. Verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality And with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Other translations say Mystery Babylon, and that's that's really the idea here. This is not simply a mystery uh, in the sense of something unknown, but what you see when that word mystery is often used in Scripture, it's describing something that has, there's been more light progressively revealed, something not fully understood in the Old Testament, but something that's now come to light in the light of Christ. And so what is it that's being referred to as Mystery Babylon? Well, it's this the spirit that is constantly working in man's world To unite unbelieving humanity against the Creator. You see, that spirit's been at work in the world going all the way back to man's fall in Genesis chapter 3. That spirit's at work in the world tonight. That spirit's working all over the world to try to unite unbelieving humanity in its rebellion against its Creator. Ultimately, who's behind that spirit? Well, we know it's the devil. Satan, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this present world system. So, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Now again, keep this in mind, read this in light of what we've already read back in chapter 13 about the beast from the sea, which we said was Antichrist, okay? So same, same language, same beast, same description here. This calls for a mind with wisdom, the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman is seated There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must reign only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. The 10 horns that you saw are 10 kings who've not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. And these are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Now, Having read all 18 verses, you can see why I'm only going to deal with the first six tonight. There's a lot there. All right? So we'll, we'll limit our, our focus tonight to just the first six verses of this particular passage. But these chapters describe Babylon, which is the world system under the influence of Satan, the Antichrist, his false prophet, and how ultimately it's going to come to its future demise. All right, now, I want to look at this in three ways. The first of which is what I'm calling Babylon Exposed. Okay, that'll be just the first six verses. And if you want to work ahead, if you want to fill in the bottom blanks, which you know I'm not going to get to tonight, you can go ahead and write Babylon Explained, beginning with verse 7, going through verse 14. And then, just so you won't need counseling if you don't get this last blank field, it is Babylon exterminated. Okay? And that will take us ver- basically verse 15 through verse 18. All right, so those are the three main headings from the chapter. But let's just limit our discussion to this first heading, Babylon exposed. All right, now, we know that John is describing a system within this passage. And we also know that he's being shown something that is symbolic. Now, again, when something is described as being symbolic in Revelation, that does not mean that it does not represent something that is a literal reality. All right, but the symbolic language helps us understand what is that literal reality. So as the chapter opens, there's an angelic messenger who carries John away in the spirit to a place in the wilderness and shows him this vision. And within the vision, he sees a woman who's sitting upon a scarlet beast. And this scarlet beast is full of all sorts of blasphemous names. You know, blasphemy is is, uh, using God's name in vain. And so this is a beast with all types of anti-God, anti-Christ language. And so when you, descri- uh, you, you consider the description of the woman, it becomes quite obvious that she is not a woman of noble character and virtue, rather she's described as being a promiscuous prostitute. Adrian Rogers preached a sermon from this chapter and the, the title of his sermon was Beauty and the Beast, okay? <laughs> Well, verse 4 says she's arrayed in purple and scarlet. She's adorned with ornate jewelry. And in her hand, there's a golden chalice or cup full of abominations and impurities associated with her sexual immorality or fornication, if you're using an older translation. But whether the word is fornication there in your translation or sexual immorality as it's rendered in the ESV, it's translating a Greek word, pornea. It's the same word we get the word pornography from, all right? So it's just this idea of blatant, uh, sensual, uh, fleshly, uh, rebellious sin. And verse 5 says that emblazoned on her forehead, there's written this name of mystery, literally Mystery Babylon, mother of prostitutes, source of earth's abominations, that kind of thing. All right, so this is a symbolic picture then of a false system, one that is both religious, one that is ideological, one that is holding people mesmerized The idea is that people have bought into the seduction of a system, the attractive, seductive lies of the world. That's what's being referred to here. This is Babylon, okay? So before we go any further, now we need to just kind of take a time out and remember that this language, Babylon, this reference to Babylon, this is not something that's new to John Because the city of Babylon has ancient origins that go all the way back to the book of Genesis. In fact, the storyline of the Bible is really the story of two cities. It's the city of man and the city of God. It's the city of man in rebellion against the city of God and the righteous rule of God. If Jerusalem is the city which is mentioned most in the Bible, comes in around 800 references or so, Well, Babylon is the city that is the second most mentioned city in the Bible roughly 300 times. And so these two cities, spiritually speaking, are in opposition to one another. Now think about it. The people of God find their citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem. Aren't you glad that your citizenship is in heaven tonight? That's my citizenship. And yet there's a sense in which ours is a dual citizenship because here we are living in Babylon. You want an illustration of what that's like? Well, we spent some time in Daniel, considered Daniel and his three friends and how they were sort of the odd men out in a system like Babylon, in a place like Babylon. Well, same thing's true for us in, in the world today. If you feel uncomfortable, you ought to because you're not at home. You, we're not at home in the world as it is now, as it currently stands with a world that's in opposition Uh, to our, our maker, a world that's under the dominion and the domination of the evil one. So you've got the people of God find their citizenship in the heavenly Jerusalem. The sons of Adam find their citizenship in the earthly and sensual Babylon. And that's why the world's all about Babylon. It's all about the here and now. It's all about what you can see. It's all about the face value of something. It's all about the attractive quality of something. That's Babylon the sensual, the base, the passions of the flesh, all of this could sort of be encapsulated by Babylon. Now, several components, several, several things to consider about Babylon. All right now first is what I would call the ancestry of Babylon. All right, if we travel back in time to a period of history that immediately followed the flood in fact, you go with me in your Bible. You're in the last book. Well, go all the way back to the first book of the Bible. And I want to show you this from the 11th chapter of Genesis. Okay? Not long after the death of Noah, we can learn something about Babylon. They're on the plain of Shiner in ancient Mesopotamia. We find the birthplace of a worldwide religion and an attempt at global government. Are you listening? So don't think that that's a recent modern invention and all that talk is, no, it goes all the way back to the beginning. You've got the story of the Tower of Babel here in the 11th chapter of Genesis, and that's what I'm talking about. All right, so what was it that God commanded Noah and Noah's sons to do? After they come out of the ark, he said, you need to replenish the earth. Scatter abroad. Be faithful. Multiply. Fill the earth. And so what happens in, in Genesis 11? Well, the descendants of Noah move east to Shiner, or the location of ancient Babylon, the area between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. It was there that they defied the mandate of God to spread out, preferring instead to band themselves together and build a tower that would symbolize their man-made greatness. <laughs> so notice verse 1 of Genesis 11 says, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. They settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. You need to underline that right there. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. All right, so here's what you have. You have this attitude that's humanistic, this attitude whereby man enshrines his own efforts, and so their actions were in direct defiance of God's clear command and word. They set themselves up as their own authority. They decided to tout their own independent autonomy, now it's interesting, there's, there's a, a, a note about this, an ancient Jewish historian, uh, Flavius Josephus, he points out the fact about those at Babel, said that they built the tower out of burnt brick which was cemented together with mortar made of bitumen so that it might not be liable to admit water. There's a little note that Josephus added there. In his thoughts on this, this passage, that's, in, that's interesting to me. What does that mean? Well, they didn't believe the promise of God that God would never destroy the world again with the global flood. So, what you have here, they wanted to build their tower so high that it might reach into the heavens so that they might sit on the throne. We're in charge, we speak our own truth. And they wanted to waterproof their tower just to prove a point. (laughs) Chuck Swindoll says that all this reveals three common foundations of all man-made religion. You can write these down because this is true of every man-made religion and philosophical system. Number one, it involves a rejection of God's promise. Man's religion... Begins with a rejection of God's promise, a clear rejection of God's self-revelation, a rejection of God's revealed truth. The second thing, it involves rebellion against God's commands. Yeah, well, God said this, but we're going to do that. God told us to do this, well, we're going to do the opposite. And then the third common foundation, it's refusal of God's grace. Look at us, look what we can do, look what we can build. We can do it, we can pull ourselves up by our own moral bootstraps, we can build this tower into heaven, we can, we can run the show, we can be in charge, we're large and in charge. We don't need God. You know, we don't need repressive religion. We don't need these rules from an invisible deity, no. So all of this is an attempt on rebellious man's part to unify his world apart from God. And so how does God respond? We won't read the rest of Genesis 11, but you know what happened. He confused their language. So you want to know where all the languages in the world come from? Well, ultimately, it can be traced back to this event here in Genesis chapter 11. And when God does this, he broke apart their ability to work together toward their godless goal. So this is a godless agenda a godless global agenda just after the flood. So here's what happens. The result is that they're forced into obeying God's prior command to spread out and (laughs) repopulate the earth, which, by the way, do you know God's will is going to always be done in your life whether you like it or not, whether you submit to it or not? You might as well just humble yourself under his mighty hand or one day he might just humble you. And I'd rather humble myself than have God humble me because that's a painful thing. We can fight against God's will. We can kick against God's will. But listen, God's will will be done. And so the ultimate result then of scattering the people at Babel rather than producing a multitude of nations and cultures who are all submitted to the lordship of God, rather than having a unity out of this diversity. It produced a multitude of nations and cultures that are in rebellion against God. You want to know why? Because they took their sin nature with them from Babel. That part of humanity did not change. And so it produced cultures and kingdoms committed to man and created countless other man-made religions with their gods and their philosophical systems. And and all of these are under the direction and the influence of Satan, who is the god of this world, the ruler, of the, the prince of the power of the air. And he works to unite man in rebellion against God. And ultimately, it's Satan who's ultimately behind the cultural movements, the social circumstances which give birth to revolutions and rebellions and that kind of thing. And so that goes back to where we were this past Sunday in 1 John chapter 4. But what I want you to see is this. There on the plain of Shinar, the very same place where the Tower of Babel once stood, eventually an empire rose up known as Babylon. And the religious pride of King Nebuchadnezzar as well as the Babylonians, that's something that's documented in history. Alan Ross in his commentary says this. Written Babylonian accounts of the building of the city of Babylon refer to its construction in heaven by the gods. The Babylonians took pride in their building. They boasted of their city as not only impregnable, but it was the heavenly city, according to the Babylonians. Uh, Babylon means um, uh, gateway of the gods. That's what it means. All right, so it's Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Now, this is interesting. It's Babylon that God raises up as an instrument of discipline in the life of apostate Israel because of their idolatry and their spiritual adultery. God raises up Nebuchadnezzar, uses him as an instrument of judgment. He and his armies in 586 B.C. level the city of Jerusalem, destroy the temple, carry away the Jews into captivity, and they're held there for 70 years in captivity. And while there they were all exposed to the idolatries of the Babylonians, the city of Babylon, it was the capital of the first four Gentile world powers that ruled over Jerusalem. So after the captivity, after 586 B.C., Jerusalem comes under the domination of kings who rule from Babylon, okay? So understand the history here. That's why I'm calling this the Ancestry of Babylon, And even after Babylon collapsed as the religious, political center of the world, it still became a fitting symbol for godless, humanistic religion in general that rejects the worship of the one true God. All right, so that's the ancestry of Babylon. Now, notice a second thing, and it's the authority of Babylon. so you go back to Revelation 17 and you notice what John is told there by this angel who says, come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute seated on many waters. Well, the great prostitute there, this is, this is Mystery Babylon. And these waters are symbolic because John is told down in verse 15 that they are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. In other words, The sea of humanity gives rise to this system which is a pluralistic amalgamation of religious, political, economic ideas and endeavors. (laughs) It's a global system. It's a system that involves the power brokers of the day, the world's movers and shakers. It's descriptive of a system whose authority comes from the people. Democracy hello, give the people what they want, and a godless people will have godless leadership, and the godless leadership will give the godless people what they want, and so on and so forth it goes. And the currency of this system is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the sinful pride of life, and that's all that the world has to offer. That's, that's what the world always offers. And the world drinks it up, and the world is intoxicated with it all. And again, you keep in mind what John said in 1 John 4. You know, those false ideas that come from every direction from the world. Secular voices who claim authority and are influential. They have large followings, and the world seems to bow at their feet. Why is that? Well, it's because they're from the world. They speak with the world's authority. Therefore, the world listens to them. So don't ever measure the success of a movement by the number of people who are part of that movement. It could just be that it's an evil movement if we're not discerning people. you, You understand what we're saying here? And so that's what the spirit of Babylon represents. Ephesians 2 talks about the spirit which is already at work in the sons of disobedience. So there's an evil spirit that's at work behind the scenes constantly trying to unify rebellious, sinful, lost humanity in its rebellion against the creator. And we know who's the one behind that. It's, it's Satan himself. Okay? Now that's pretty heavy. So that's the authority of this Babylonian system that John is, is speaking to. Now, what about the adultery? You've got to stay alliterated here. He's dealing with sexual immorality, so I'm going to use that word adultery there. Well, verse 2 says, the prostitute is one with whom the kings of the earth have committed immorality. And with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So the world is intoxicated with this mystery Babylon. Babylon. Worldwide system involving the political, cultural leaders and influencers of the world who are in bed with one another. They've all bought into the cult. If anyone would buck the system, they're guaranteed to be canceled. The whole world is intoxicated with the immorality of Babylon and the satanic authority from which it derives. So there's this sense of intoxicating attraction. And you'll notice there in verse 4, the woman is described in these vivid terms, arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewelry. Again, all of this is attractive, seductive language that appeals to the eyes, that appeals to the senses, that appeals to the flesh. When holding in her hand, she's got a golden cup full of abominations. That's a reference to Jeremiah 51, verse 7, where something similar is said that says, Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand making all the earth drunken, and the nations drank of her wine. Therefore, the nations went mad. Don't tell me God's not in charge, even of the godless systems and governments of humanity. Are you listening to that? I'm going to read that verse again. Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand, Making all the earth drunken, the nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. They've rejected the light. They've rejected the truth. They've rejected the precepts of the Lord and the sweetness of His word and His counsel. And so God, being the perfect gentleman that He is, He gives them exactly what they want. And in His judgment, His judgments are thus... You choose to go your way apart from God, God will let you go that way. But the judgment of God is just and righteous and true and you will reap the bitter consequences. It's true for individuals, it's true for nations, it's true for all of humanity that thumbs its nose in the face of omnipotence. So this idea, men and women will become drunk on themselves in the last days. I don't think I've ever seen narcissism so pronounced in my lifetime as I have just recently. Narcissism. Ours is the selfie generation. We can't go to the bathroom without taking a picture of ourselves and putting it out for the rest of the world to see and know about for some reason. I don't understand it. What is it that we want? We just, we want our ego stroked just to speak to my ego, you know. It's all about me because really the world's all about me and the church is all about me and service is all about me and everything's all about me, 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 me. And that's the Spirit that John seems to be describing here that's going to be characteristic of Babylon, this Babylonian global world mentality in the last days. Jesus said that lawlessness will abound in the last days and the love of many will grow cold. And there's no doubt that some final version of mystery Babylon will incorporate some elements of the church or apostate Christianity in some kind of perverted form. You know, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the day of the Lord won't come until a great falling away or apostasy happens first. And we tend to think, okay, does that mean just wholesale atheistic rejection of Christianity? Well, not necessarily. But you can guarantee that it'll also include a diluted form of religion that denies the power thereof. People who use the name of God, people who want to be churchy and religious all the while rejecting God's word. And so God will be spoken of, but not according to the way that he's revealed himself. It will be an anti-Christianity that you see at work. An apostate Christianity that is linked up with sensual, unbelieving culture. And the only difference is, well, one group just uses God language, the other group really doesn't. What about the alliance? Verse 3, John says the prostitute is seated on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. Now you look at the way the beast is described here, seven heads, ten horns. It identifies it with the same beast described in chapter 13. This is the Antichrist and his government, okay? So the idea is that the Antichrist will support... This Mystery Babylon movement, this, this, these cultural ideas, this false religion, if that's what you want to call it, and her vile system. And using political clout, economic, social clout, the Antichrist will help Mystery Babylon's influence go global. Okay? She will pollute the world with her ideas all with the full support of the Antichrist. Now, someone even suggested this, the fact that she's depicted as sitting on the beast may illustrate that she's in control of him at first. Kind of like a child that's riding the back of a, of a, st- of a, you know, a mighty steed or stallion. You ever thought about that horse you know, under the direction of that child on the back of that horse? That, that, that thing is strong, it's a, it's a monstrosity of an animal it could easily do its own thing and you know, buck that child right off, but it willingly submits to the child who's pulling on the reins. Well it could be that you have this idea of, of the populace in control of the things, crying out for its revolution, crying out for its leader, crying out for its savior. Away with the old and in with the new. Revolution, revolution, revolution. Let's take to the streets. And it gets away from it in a hurry. And next thing you know, the crowd has been given something that the crowd's like, uh, this wasn't what we bargained for. (laughs) Case in point, the French Revolution. One of the bloodiest events in modern history between 1789 and 1799, uh, the French went through dramatic changes in terms of their social, political systems. They overthrew a monarchical system that was built on you know, this you know, aristocracy, church privilege. And so they attempted to replace all of that with a democratic version of society. But it was a bloody revolution. And, and hundreds of thousands of men and women and children in France, they paid for these transformations of society with their lives. The guillotine became a weapon of choice, and people were beheaded by the hundreds and by the thousands. Bloodshed happened throughout France in a variety of other ways. People attacked one another on the streets, in prisons. Churches were ransacked and destroyed. Men and women in the royal family were murdered, uh, those in the church and church leadership were murdered with their association with the old order. The September massacres of 1792 were perhaps the most horrific events during that whole time frame in the French Revolution. Over a period of five days, mobs of people, mobs of revolutionaries slaughtered more than 1,200 people. and Many of those victims were priests and nuns, So, it was interesting. Someone has said, okay, well, what was the difference between the American Revolution and the French Revolution? Why, you know, even though the American Revolution was indeed a conflict, why was it not to the degree of a bloody, vicious, you know, atheistic, God-rejecting conflict like the French Revolution? (laughs) It's because of the Word of God. It's because of the authority of the Bible. Because those in leadership understanding where ultimate authority rests. But see, the thing is, something could be said for these cultural movements and these political movements and these Twitter hashtags where the people get behind it and create these mass movements. And where does that go? And ultimately, who's in control of that? Who's leading that? Who's directing that? Well, it's the evil one. It's the evil one. And as far as the last days is concerned, what makes the tribulation so terrible is that Satan is going to be allowed to have more control over the world than ever before. The restraining influence of the Holy Spirit will have been removed with the rapture of the church, I believe. And that's going to result in an explosion of demonic activity, which no doubt is the primary force behind the deception and the delusion and the false religion that will grip the world. And when you really think about it, the irony, and this is not just true of of that particular time, but it's true of our time, the irony of the day is that the world is not really becoming more secular, it's really becoming more religious. (laughs) Religious. Why? Well, because people are getting behind ideas associated with authority and autonomy and philosophical systems and that kind of thing. Man's religion, secular religion. While the world may be getting more religious, it's definitely not becoming more righteous. And therefore it's on a cataclysmic course. The last thing before we shut down tonight is the animosity of Babylon. Verse six, John says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints. And when I saw all this, he says, I marveled greatly. It's interesting that Mystery Babylon tolerates every idea but the truth Those who are in the truth, declare the truth, are persecuted for it. And all throughout history, every false religious system has persecuted the people of God who hold to the truth and preach the truth. It was true in ancient Israel, true in the earliest days of Christianity under Roman emperors. It will be true in the last days. So here's the thing, you consider all of this. And, and you see how the world seems to be so intoxicated with these ideas and intoxicated with itself. You may be marveling, much like John marvels when he's shown all of this. And you say, well, what does this mean for me? Uh, what does this mean for us? You know, for one thing, I think it means we're always going to be on the outside of things as far as the world is concerned if you feel like you're an outsider who have been pushed away from the table. That's the way it always has been for the people of God and the world. The true believer's always going to be at at odds with the world. And it means that we're never going to really fit in no matter how much we want to. So why would we waste our time trying to fit in with the world to try to reach the world? Why don't we just shine like the lights that the Lord God wants us to be and to hold forth His truth and to let the Lord use that to point people to himself. Babylon is a city under judgment, but I'm so glad that my citizenship is in the Jerusalem above. And I'm gonna set my mind, my heart, my affections on the Jerusalem above where Christ is. Let's stand for prayer tonight. You know, Mark said that religion was an opiate. I would say this, Man's religion most definitely is an opiate because it's not true. But Christianity, the gospel, oh listen, what I have in Jesus Christ is absolutely out of this world. The world didn't give it to me, and the world most certainly can't take it away. Lord, in Jesus' name, we thank you tonight for your word. And God, when we consider the state of our world The fact that so many are under delusion tonight, blinded by the evil one, intoxicated with lies. Lord, use us to be your instruments and lights, witnesses, Lord, to selflessly love people in Jesus' name and point people to the hope of our gospel. And Lord, that's what this Easter season and Passion Week is all about, (laughs) What a time it is, Lord, for us to have conversations with people that we encounter. And God, may we be prepared to give them a reason, a defense, when it comes to the hope that we possess. And so, Lord, we pray to that end. I pray for these men and women in this room tonight and all that they've got going on in their lives. I know, Lord God, that they've got burdens and things that are weighing heavily upon their heart. Lord, encourage them with this precious truth that their citizenship is in heaven if they know Jesus. And Lord, no matter what the world and the evil one would throw our way, we are more than overcomers through Jesus Christ who loved us. And it's in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen.